Welcome to another installment of Anthropod. I'm Ian Aldi, and for this episode, I had the honor of participating in the 2015 Swedish Anthropological Conference and had the pleasure of interviewing Sverker Finström, who is an associate professor in cultural anthropology at the Department of Cultural Anthropology and Ethnology at Uppsala University, as well as the former chair of the board for the Swedish Anthropological Association. And Federica Guglielmo, who is a PhD candidate in medical anthropology at the School of Social Sciences, Brunel University, London. Both Federica and Sverka participated and presented at the annual Swedish Anthropological Conference of 2015. The conference of 2015 focused on the overall theme of how to do the right thing, anthropology and morality which does set the frame for this interview. As anthropologists, we often, both within the field and beyond, think about how to do the right thing, and especially within the past decade, anthropologists have increasingly paid attention to morality, resulting on one hand in studies of morality, and on the other hand in a more sensitive methods and representative strategies. In this episode, besides introducing us to their own fascinating work and connecting it to the overall theme of anthropology and morality, both Sverka and Federica talks about the different moral settings that one can encounter in the field. The duality that can arise from one's position in the field and one's own morals. And lastly, the conversation turns to the subject of the anthropological concept of do no harm. I hereby bring you the interview with Sverka Finström and Federica Guglielmo, recorded during the 2015 Annual Swedish Anthropological Conference. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. As a start, if you could both have a short introduction to your own work and perhaps from your own work connected to the subject of moral, which is the overall theme for this Swedish Anthropological Association conference. Perhaps you could start. Thank you. I've been working in, in uh, northern Uganda since 1997 when I first went there as part of my PhD studies. And I keep going back as often as I can. And my focus in my research has been on the war between the Lord's Resistance Army rebels and the Ugandan Armed Forces. And uh, that war has kind of been, it's now really relocated, it's, it's been exported to the neighboring countries. So Northern Uganda is today some kind of, there is some kind of peace in Northern But what I presented in this conference uh, related to, to stuff that I did when the war was very much ongoing and uh, dealt with moral dilemmas of having informants with close connections to the Lord's Resistance Army rebels, who are a terrorist organization according to US and Ugandan laws. So basically I had terrorist uh, informants, which also relates to the uh, title of this conference, Do the Right Thing. How do you deal with very, very tricky situations you ended up, end up with in, in the, during fieldwork? And Federica? I work in Rwanda, been working there since 2009. Um, I've carried out roughly three years of fieldwork since. 
Um, I was both for my master and my PhD studies. Um, the focus of the research is um, the memory of the genocide, so how people remember the genocide and what happened, what led to the genocide in the first place. So I study um, aspects of memory that go from formal annual uh, commemorations to um, traumatic memory. Particularly, um, I try to focus on how memory becomes history, so how a certain narrative of the events is endorsed by the authorities and actually becomes an unquestionable history. Do the right thing applied to my research because not only identities are much more blurred than those of victims and perpetrators, um, but also because I found myself interviewing people who will be defined as vulnerable on the one hand, and on the other, my own research made vulnerable subjects by talking to me about the genocide in certain terms instead of others, by maybe uh, opposing these official narratives, subjects made themselves vulnerable. And it wasn't my job to choose a narrative, of course, um, but allowing a counter-narrative is per se uh, punishable mm. with um, a crime of genocide denial. Um, so, you know, I had to uh, deal with different actors and I had to mediate between different positions about something that is so big and so overwhelming as a genocide. So you have both been exposed to these paradoxes of different moral settings within one context and how, should, how one should negotiate it. How did each of you reflect in regards to your research ethics and your moral dilemmas within this context? Mm. Like you talk about Sverka, mm -hmm. about how you were dealing with informants who were mm. officially marked as terrorists. And you, Federica, you talk about how you yourself, if you denied some of these uh, narratives, you yourself would actually be guilty of denying a voice in, the, in documenting this genocide. How do you negotiate these different positions and morals? Well, you know, in, in my case, and uh, I, I should perhaps also say that the Lord Resistance Army is, or at least was, very well known in the US thanks to an organization called Invisible Children and a campaign that they run called CON 2012, or in US English, CONI 2012. Uh, so the leader of the Lord Resistance Army, Yusuf Khan, uh, has become, uh, you know, world known. Uh, you know, it is an organization uh, labeled as terrorist, and indeed they are guilty of horrendous war crimes and crimes against humanity. That, so that's not really, you know, the issue here. Everyone agree about that. But if I go back to 1999, a period which I gave as an example in my paper in this conference, when the war was very much ongoing and uh, the rebels, you know, they basically owned the countryside and they owned the night. They were everywhere. And I had, you know, I was conducting this interview with a key informant, a man who I had come to know very well. And this was more than an interview. We, we, sp we spent a day together uh, just chatting. 
having coffee, tea, some food. There were people coming and going, and I understood only later that one of the guys who came to join us for a while was actually a Lord Resistance Army rebel who came to check me out. And then he, he left. And towards the end of, of uh, the interview, which no longer was really an interview, was just a conversation uh, about everything. My informant asked me, you know, there is this local politician uh, of the government and the rebels are you know, increasingly annoyed with him. So they think it's time to basically execute him. So Sverker, do you think that's a good idea to kill him? So of course, I think my, my informant was, was kind of testing me here. That led to a two hour long conversation where I tried to explain to him the role of the so-called neutral and objective researcher. I also tried to explain to him my own personal background as a pacifist and that I personally did not believe in violence as a solution. And he was, you know, eagerly listening to me. And it seemed like that he accepted my answer, which was much more than only an answer. It was basically a... We had a conversation about anthropology, about research ethics, about morals, basically about doing the right thing or not doing the right thing. And basically I explained myself and tried to outline my context. And it seemed like he agreed. And in retrospect, you know, the politician survived. He was not executed by the rebels. But I think he was just testing me. And in this situation, some doors were closed, other doors opened. And I don't know which doors. That's just how fieldwork is. And this is, was perhaps an extreme situation in, in, for an anthropologist. But I think it's, it's the same in whatever context you work as an anthropologist. It's only that in my case, some other people with influence and power, like from the Ugandan government and from some intervening outside countries like the US, uh, had defined my informants as terrorists, which puts another dilemma into that situation. I noticed that you were recognizing, or at least nodding, <laughs> Federica, to some of these, uh, these dualistic positions that you could be, be placed in the testing of the... Researcher. Yeah, one thing all scholars or Rwandan scholars agree on is that the Rwandan government is very keen on double check people and you know what they write and what they say and in order to avoid a misrepresentation of the genocide and of the, the government. So it, it's interesting to say what's a misrepresentation in that case. To that extent, people say uh, that one in ten people is a, is a spy. And, you know, Rwanda is very important not to be direct. If you're direct, and I am a very direct person, people don't trust you because you're taking a position, you are forcing other people to take a position. Therefore, you're not building alliances, you're causing conflict. And you never know who you can trust or who you cannot trust, so conflict is never a good thing, particularly in public. So my informants started trusting me when I started hiding things from them. Small things. Like you walk in the street and people will ask you, uh, so where are you going? 
And at the beginning, I'll be like, oh, I'm going to the church, I'm going to the square. And maybe I was lying, you know, I didn't want them to know. But at the same time, I was giving a direction. So they thought I was actually saying where I was going. And they would laugh at me. Um, and then a friend of mine told me, you shouldn't say that. You used to say, oh, you know, I'm just walking. And I started trying that. And people were like, oh, you know then. You know how it works. Or what are you eating? What are you about to eat for lunch? Oh, you know, food. Ah, you're a true Rwanda now. You know how to hide things. You know how to behave. So from the, most, from the very small things, it was like, you should never take a position. Because when you say what you eat, you're saying how much you earn. And a colleague of mine, in a completely different context, once told me something very wise which is, it's not how you think of yourself, and it's not how you think of them, but it's what they think of you that matters. It's how they see you. They will open or close doors in this sense. So it's not about what you think you're doing, but it's about what they think you're doing. Mm. So it doesn't matter if you, I mean, to, to you know, ordinary citizens, particularly in the countryside, what mattered to them was that I was able to understand the context and I was able, you know, to smile if need be or to nod if need be, but just not to talk about other people's business. And that's how they started trusting me. I was like, oh, you know things, but you hide them. Mm -hmm. So you know how to behave, you know, you mm -hmm. don't lash out if people provoke you or you don't you know how to go around the topic without mm -hmm. giving a straight answer then you're trustworthy i see that you are mm -hmm. you're recognizing some of these oh yes it, you know it's a it's a, it's a never-ending learning experience i think you know when basically if you have informants who also become some kind of key co-workers in the in the anthropological research on the ground they will bit by bit slowly teach you how to behave and how you know what to say what not to say but also how to walk in a sense when I first came to, to Uganda there were actually northern Uganda was not that many western people up in the north in, in the war zone there were a few but they were driving up and down in their four-wheel humanitarian vehicles and there was this strange guy walking the anthropologist but, you know, they didn't understand what anthropology was, but there was, it, it could only be two reasons for this guy to be here. Either a born-again pastor or a U.S. Marine, you know, on some kind of secret mission. And they said so because of the way I walked, which I take to be a kind of Swedish way of walking, you know. I'm, I'm going from place A to B. I'm going from my place to somewhere where I'm supposed to interview somebody. And I try to do my best to greet people on the way and so on. But still, you know, on, on a mission somewhere. So this whole idea of my walking style being a proof of me being a Marine was very strange to me because being a pacifist and refused to be military doing military service in Sweden, it was completely different how I thought about my body, how, you know, my bodily movements in the field. So I slowly learn to be aware of that and uh, try to, you know, somebody saw me take a beer in the bar and realized I can't be a born-up-again pastor, so it must be. The only remaining option now is the marine uh, intelligence guy. 
So I have to somehow deal with that. And also this, which uh, Frederica said, which is very interesting and resonates very much with my own work, how not really say everything, you know. You're going to meet somebody where you're going, oh, we're going to that end of town to talk to somebody. And, you know, and even when you meet this guy, and especially if you meet some person and you want to talk about sensitive stuff, on the, which in my case relates to the war and the Lord Resistance Army, you first, you know, there's this long period we try to understand each other. The agendas, my agenda as a researcher, the informant's agenda, my co-worker's agenda, and so on. And eventually, slowly, okay, we shall see if there's enough trust in this situation to actually talk about more sensitive or secret or private matters. So it's a constant learning experience. I think for us, working in places like Rwanda and Uganda, you know, it, it's, it's a matter of, you know, we every time, all the time have to think about it. We can't really escape it. If you work on a beach somewhere in Zanzibar, I don't know, perhaps you don't have to deal with it all the time. Mm. But essentially, it's, not a, it's no difference, I think. And you both mentioned how you were mistaken for spies. How do you think about which audience you, not just when you're, when you're talking to people on the street or walking from A to B, but how do you think about different audiences in mm. regards to what you write? Again, like if you have groups who are marked for genocide perpetrators or mm. victims, or you have Lord's Resistance Army mm. rebels, you think about both, like how will this reflect to an audience let's say, in, in the United States or in, in, in Scandinavia, but how will it relate to my informants? Mm -hmm. Like, there's this tiptoeing about different audiences and, and how moral relates to language. What I found very interesting and very annoying is that every time I present or every time I write something, at some point I have to specify, you know, I'm not denying the genocide. There was a genocide and people died and there was persecution, there was Fear. There are no words to describe mm. it, to, to, to give the idea of what happened in that sense. There was a genocide. That does not mean that there were no other acts of violence, or that doesn't mean that there were no other problems, or it doesn't mean that people didn't look at it in different ways. I'm not here to say that someone is right or that someone is wrong. This is not mm. my job. And I was asked on several occasions to speak the truth. This is of course, from government officials. You're here to, to, to investigate the truth, to find the truth. And I was like, well, the truth is not really my thing. I mean, I'm an anthropologist, you know, I don't deal with the truth. No, 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 you're here to find out about the truth. So that having to explain every time, you know, I'm not a genocide denial. Absolutely. I went there because I remembered it when it happened. I was a child, and yet I remembered it. And it got stuck in my head so much that, you know, I did my PhD on that. I'm doing my PhD on that. But when people hear the word genocide, it's like any critical thinking just turns off. There is a genocide. Therefore, there is a right and a wrong side. And of course, in each peculiar situation there was a right and a wrong side mm. but it's very hard I think it's very unprofessional for an anthropologist to speak of a right and wrong side when it comes to millions of people and millions of experiences and millions of memories my job is to record them and to read them you know not to judge them I'm not a historian that's not my job 
but yeah, writing is very complex because as in the field you're always thinking about what people will see in you, it's the same thing now. It's not something you can forget for a second because of even doing other presentations, people, um, I was criticized for that. You know, you're saying that these people, I don't know, haven't suffered enough. I was not, that's not what I'm saying. But thank you for making my point for me. What I'm saying is that people become blind when it comes to these topics. So. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed that I started this conversation with a kind of disclaimer that, you know, we all agree that the Lord Resistance Army are war criminals <coughs> and they have committed crimes against humanity. Mm. It's a kind of disclaimer that I, you know, I have to start with that mm. because otherwise people will... will uh, Say that I'm a rebel supporter. Of course, Ugandan authorities have done that all the time throughout the years. But also, fellow academics uh, will, and and even I think you know I have you know even in my written work have you know there's a lot of disclaimer and context. Uh, it's interesting, you know. I have not really there's not really been a need for me to or let me put it like this: when I talk to rebel supporters or even the in in the diaspora or in Uganda, or even those who you know, are rebels or have been rebels, they have no problem when I say that, you know, I think it's wrong to, you know, abduct children and have child soldiers. I think, you know, the the, war, the crimes that you committed, the Lord's Resistance Army is committing, I think that's completely wrong. They have no problem with that. But it's more, more often it's my fellow academics who somehow seem to think that there are not enough with disclaimers. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think the job of the anthropologist is to give context. And the job of the anthropologist is trying to understand our informants. And now, if some of the informants happens to be Lord Resistance Army supporters or Lord Resistance Army rebels, it is also our job to listen to their stories. When they try to explain to me or motivate or whatever, yeah, well, really explain the violence and why they are doing these things. It, it's part of the anthropological... Uh, work to listen to that as as well, and that seems to be. Even the Ugandan government side, seem to have no problem with that. It, it's mostly actually fellow academics. But then, even in that sense, mm. how are people expecting to prevent violence if they don't understand it? Exactly, that's been my point. You know, in my research proposals, mm. and you know. Can you end this war if you don't understand it? If you understand the causes, yeah, exactly. So, so no, it's 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 a very good question, and uh, I think that's that's also how I kind of motivate my research for various research funds. You know, mm. applying for a grant from the Swedish International Development Agency or whatever. You know, so how does this research relate to democratization and so on and so forth? Well, you know, you can't have democratization if you don't have peace, and you can't have peace if you don't understand this war. Mm -hmm. So, and they, they have, the funding agencies have accepted that argument. So you both have this really clear understanding that there are victims and there are perpetrators, but in, in all sense, these are humans with narratives, mm. and you're trying to understand and listen to these narratives. A central argument for many anthropologists working with, for example, counterinsurgency units mm. in the military is that anthropologists should engage, no matter what the circumstances, to reduce harm 
for both sides in a conflict. While others like um, David Price argued that this, this risks militarizing anthropology and moves us away from our original understanding of the discipline. So I was just interested in how when we talk about doing the right thing at this mm. conference in Sweden and we talk about moral and negotiating the field, how do you relate to this whole counterinsurgency debate? It's a tricky question. It's a tricky question, but first I'd like to say there are victims and there are perpetrators, but these identities are not fixed. Victims can become perpetrators and the other way around. And that's the point, you know. It's not that neat, I mean, otherwise it would be very simple. The human terrain system, it's a context in which anthropologists start working with those in power. What happens is that you work with those who have the weapons and you try and either train them on how to understand the you know, indigenous population. There was this very famous example of, I think it was the, in Afghanistan, the people would, uh, that the military would try and stop the cars and the Afghani would think that they were waving at them. Yeah. So people would shoot, each other, would shoot each other for that. So in this sense, of course, it's very useful. On the other hand, Anthropologists working with those in power has never led to any good outcome. Colonization, vaccine illegal trials, or, I don't know, secret services, it, it has never... This is like a very unspoken rule in, I believe, among anthropologists. Like, you don't work with pharmaceuticals, you don't work with militaries, you don't work with these people. You work on the other side to protect those who cannot understand what's going on. So I'm not very keen on that. I'm very curious about that. But I'm not sure I would be happy with myself if I did that. No, I, you know, I've been doing some work with David Price. He was part of an anthology that I did together with another American anthropologist called Neil Whitehead. But there is also a small book that David Price wrote, which is called Weaponizing Anthropology. Mm. And I think what he says there is, you know, there's three layers to your question. Uh, there's this first aspect, which is actually political. There's a war somewhere, there's an intervention. And then you as a scholar have to make up your mind. Do I support this intervention or not? And if your kind of conclusion is, yes, I do support this intervention, it's a kind of political decision you have to take. Fine, you can be part of it, and you can find ways to make yourself part of it. When it comes to Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson, actually they really thought that fascism would take over the world. They were, you know, they were really, really afraid of that. Uh, after the war, Gregory Bateson was very disappointed with how the kind of knowledge they provided eventually had been used and was used. So he withdrew from that, you know, cooperation with the military, military people. But the second aspect then, if you made up yourself, you, you come up with a decision politically, then there is this ethical dimension of doing research. Of doing research when you basically force into informants to talk to you, sometimes at gunpoint. There is an ethical aspect, and I would, you know, for me, it was, would be too problematic. And thirdly, what David Price points out is the epistemological dimension. What kind of knowledge do we create under these situations? So, so this is, you know, these are some of the reasons why I have a, you know, great problem with the human terrain uh, system. Scholars, 
even if you know there would potentially be situation that I could agree with them politically that this is something good to be done. But if you take that to my own field in North Uganda, when you are, where you have actually U.S. military intervention in comparison with the Ugandan army, so there is this, for me, very, very telling interview with the, with the U.S. officer when he speaks about the Lord Resistance Army rebels who actually come out from the bush. And he says, and I hear a quote, I still have this quote in, in the back of my head, these ex-Lord Resistance Army guys don't have many skills. It will be difficult for them to reintegrate. But they are good at hunting human beings in the woods. So officially, if the human terrain system is about identifying the bad guy <coughs> to kill him, which is actually what, the, what they say. You know, from my side, you know, my take on this, when I see how it works in, in the Uganda case, you know, they don't want to identify the bad guys to necessarily kill them, but to recruit them because they need the bad guys to be able to go after the other bad guys. And for those ex-Lord Resistance Army soldiers who eventually come out from the bush, it's not, it's not really a choice for them. They know either I go to court or I join the other side and go back to the battle zone. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's a choiceless choice. Mm. Really, so so, and that for me, that's uh, it, it's kind of dehumanizing these rebels. They're just used as tools, and they know it. The only way for me is to survive. To survive is to you know follow the orders of those who order me around, in a sense. So, for example, one of the most notorious rebel commanders who conducted the massacre in the Congo in two thousand eight over Christmas, going to a church massacre. 140 people. One year later, he defected and he joined the Ugandan army. One of the most brutal Lord Resistance Army commander. I think it's my job as an anthropologist to point out this is very difficult, this is very problematic how we divide the world into the good guys and the bad guys, black and white, victim and perpetrator. Exactly what you said from your Rwanda perspective earlier, you know, you know, it's very contextual. People who are uh, perpetrators are most often also victims. It's all contextual, and it's our job to try to outline that context, to, to, to also uh, outline the complexities. Exactly. We don't have to make it simple. We have yeah. to make it clear, which exactly. is way different. If you don't want to bother with complexities, then you shouldn't be involved in human beings. And then, you know, what you said about uh, this intervention being good or not. Good to whom? Because if it's good, for the population there, then I believe I can do better than using weapons, you know? If it's actually good for them. Think of the Ebola case. The WHO has been recruiting anthropologists lately, finally. Because there is a problem in burying the corpses, and people don't trust the doctors. Now the doctors there are actually trying to avoid spreading the disease. But there, there are miscommunications, and people don't understand each other, and this is causing more deaths. So in that case, it is useful because I'm not enforcing an idea onto somebody else. I am trying to mediate. But military interventions? I cannot think of a context in which, you know, a military intervention can be good at all. It's good for some, but it cannot be good at all. 
Well, you know, I think that David Price's point is, which I kind of agree to, is you know, if you if you personally make your up your mind up yeah. that this, you know, politically I support this, that's the first decision. And yeah. if you do, then come to the conclusion that I that you do support it. You know, fine. Then you have the next next level of you know the ethical and the epistemological that you have to deal with. But you know, in practice, you know, I'm very much with you there. You know, I, I there are. Today, on the African continent, more than two U.S. military operations every day. And, you know, they have made research more difficult. Uh, and I, it's a kind of security apparatus, military apparatus, uh, claiming the humanitarian imperative on the ground, which I find, you know, it's, it's, it's turning Africa into a battle zone. That's how they, the soldiers themselves describe it. Among a final thing, because we are present mm. at the Swedish Association for Anthropology's yearly conference here in Lund in Sweden, how would you present Swedish anthropology as presented here at the conference? Now, I stepped down, but as a former chair of the Swedish Anthropological Association, I'm very happy with this conference. You had, I think we had 111 delegates or giving individual papers. You had two keynotes and you have some 50 panels. So it's one of the biggest, you know, American standards is a small conference, but it's one of the biggest conferences in our history in, in Sweden. But also with a with very tight theme, do the right thing, anthropology and morality, and all papers have actually addressed this theme. So in that sense, it's been a very familiar and, and a neat conference with a lot of discussions and debates, with a lot of interaction, which you don't really see at the AAAs, for example. You know, you, yes, you see the interaction, but it's just massive amount of people there. Mm. When it comes to Swedish anthropology, you know, I think you can see Swedish anthropology is very much alive and, and, and also important, you know, kind of there is important stuff going on, but it is also important to, to, to have a Scandinavian scene uh, in these days when so much is dominated by North America academically. So that's also very happy, to, uh, nice for us to see people from other countries in Europe, some people focus on Russia. So it's, you know, it's a widening of the anthropological landscape, I think. Far away, Sweden. I was really happy with the topic. I think it went through a mailing, an international mailing list only once and I was super excited about the fact that you know, there was actually a group of people interested enough in that to organize a conference about it. So I was pretty happy with the topic and with the people I managed to, to meet. It was a very friendly environment in many senses. And also I was happy to get to know a bit more of this, yes, Scandinavian side of European anthropology. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you to our loyal listeners for joining me for this brief glimpse into the 2015 conference of the Swedish Anthropological Association. Once again, I want to thank Sverker Finström and Federica Guglielmo for speaking with me, and the board of the Swedish Anthropological Association for letting me cover the conference. The next conference of the Swedish Anthropological Association holds the title Inside Outside Anthropology, 
and will take place on April 21st to 23rd, 2016 at the School of Global Studies, University of Gothenburg, Sweden. Send us your comments about this and any of our other episodes by searching for Culture Anthropology on Twitter, Facebook, or by sending an email via coldant.org. Lastly, I would like to thank Willie Lampert for extensive help and editing, and also Rupa Pillay and Bascon Gouffin for support during this process. Thank you.